What's that hurling down the pist? Another rubbish U.S. remake of a European art house hit? Actually, no. This version of Force Majeure isn't quite as wonderfully unsettling, but it's not far off. That's my review of Downhill. New movie from Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus came out earlier this year. It's now available on HBO, which is where I saw it. It got some savage reviews. And once again, Vertha Contreras is going to be rearing his ugly head. The Untouchables, also in honor of Sean Connery. I rewatched it again, started to finish. What a film, man. Brian De Palma bringing the heat. Uh, in addition to that, speaking of bringing the heat, great stuff by Michael Covino and Kyle Marvin. The Climb, great guests a week ago. LA Times in a headline, Is The Climb the Greatest Romance Comedy of All Time? How's that for rave reviews? I hope everyone goes and sees The Climb, and thanks again for their generosity. We keep it going with great guests. Sami Khan and Michael Gassert, they are the directors of The Last Out. This is about Cubans fleeing risking exile to train in Central America, trying to get to their dream of playing Major League Baseball. It is a terrific documentary, and both those guys are articulate and smart, and I hope you check out the film itself. It is available right now at the Doc NYC Film Festival, docnyc.net for more details. The last out, what it's called, interview coming up. As I mentioned, we're doing that Farrell movie out of the gate, which is why we're going to do the Mount Rushmore of Will Farrell movies. Lots of great comedies Will has made over the years. Um, as always... Please do give some love to us here on Cinephile by going to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. As always, you can tweet me as well, CinephilePod or Adnan S. Verk. I see the latest reviews here. T. Brad saying, do yourself a favor and unsubscribe, resubscribe, and rate and review. So it's actually, you know, that's what Rasil and I used to always say, but it is no longer accurate, at least with the new metrics here at Cadence 13. So that was the old method. If you just subscribed unsubscribe, resubscribe, that counted as two. No, 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 no. Now, my man Joe tells me, you just have to listen for like a, a you know prescribed amount of time, five minutes, whatever it is. And then if you like, let's say, go away and do something and come back an hour later, it still only counts as one listen. If you wait more than 24 hours to listen again, then it counts as a second listen, which sounds like way too much work for all of you. I would not compel any of you to go to that kind of nonsense. Just listen once, spread the word. I appreciate that. You don't have to subscribe, unsubscribe, and resubscribe. Uh, T. Brad goes on to say, I've listened to almost all the episodes dating back to ESPN days, COVID-19, up end of my weekly routines, including podcast listening. Happy to say I'm back on track. Great podcast for frank reviews on movies, miniseries, and long-form cable slash streaming network TV shows. Thank you so much, Steve Brad. By the way, The Undoing Man, poof. If you're not watching, just start watching, okay? My boy Cabby's watching. I'm so happy he's watching with his wife. We're four episodes in. My head's blown. I'm giving away no spoilers, okay? Just watch The Undoing on HBO. I don't even know how many episodes it is. Joe, if you can just do a quick Google search right now. I think it's six episodes, but I'm so terrified of like ruining anything. Like I don't even want to Google anything about it. Even just mistakenly, it'll come up. And I'm up to date. The fourth episode just aired on HBO, but I think it's a six-episode miniseries. Joe, do we have clarification? or Okay, all right. So I can't believe there's only two. I'm upset right now. There's only two episodes left. I feel like we've got a lot more meat on the bone here, but uh, I cannot wait for the two. And Fargo, oh my God. So the Hollywood Reporter had given a, a, a very good review. They said at times they thought um, they were biting off more than they could chew, which I completely disagree. I think the show has been brilliant. But I did remember in the review, which I read months ago, they said episode nine, just watch for it. And episode nine just aired. Outstanding. All right, black and white episode focusing strictly on Rabbi and Satchel on the run. I will say no more. Please watch Fargo. If you haven't watched it, get caught up on FX. Chris Rock playing a terrific get bad guy. Jason Schwartzman, who we love from Rushmore, very funny as a Stanley Tucci type Italian gangster. 1950s Kansas City. It is so well shot. I mean, same with The Undoing. I mean, you, I watch these shows and I go, the cinematography just blows me away. I'm like, God, it's just so well framed. And particularly Fargo has such a strong artistic sensibility. Honestly. Joey, did you watch the most recent episode of Fargo? Not yet. I, I always save them for Tuesday nights, so I'm excited to get into it. But I'm all caught up. Otherwise, it's just this latest one that I need to see. No, I, I totally get it. Listen, Sunday night we're watching football. Monday night we're watching football. So if you don't get any money during the day, I totally get that. It's almost better to save it right now, the, the dearth of sports for a good Tuesday night viewing. But trust me, Fargo you're going to love. Uh, one other comment, dblack 519 I've been listening every week for quite some time now. Watching movies that I've never seen before is the only thing that seems to be exciting during this pandemic. Loving mafia-type movies, I can't believe it took me so long to watch Mean Streets. You are right. That is a wonderful movie. A mook, a mook. What's a mook? We're not paying because this guy's a mook. That whole scene in the pool hall, I mean, it, iconic. Amazing. Please, Mr. Postman, by the Marvelettes. How about the Ronettes? Be my little baby out of the gate. Super 8. Harvey Keitel can't sleep. You don't pay for your sins at home. You do it on the street. 
Everything else is bullshit, and you know it. I mean, God, De Niro coming on as Johnny Boy? As Rosillo once said to me, because the reason I love De Niro in that movie is he's an idiot. Like, De Niro is actually a very smart guy, and you see him in a lot of movies, he can be a cerebral guy. But his character in Mean Streets, Johnny Boy, is an idiot. He's that guy. Everybody has this one friend. For some reason, he's a friend. He's a goofball, bit of a moron. But De Niro plays him so well because he's charming and just a little bit dangerous uh, when Michael's coming calling for his money. But yes, thank you, D Black 519. I'm so glad you finally watched Mean Streets. I may watch it again this week. What the hell? Um, how about doing a Mount Rushmore Stephen King movie sometime? I know you guys don't talk a lot about the horror movie genre, but he has so many good books made into movies. Done. I'm nothing if someone who does not take feedback. So D Black 519, Joe, mark it down. Next week, Mount Rushmore Stephen King movies. Joe is a big horror movie aficionado, so that'll make sense for us to do. Mount Rushmore, Stephen King movies coming up. Thank you for the feedback, and please do spread the word to everybody here. Hope everybody's staying safe. Normally, we start with the reviews. You're all used to this formulaic system I have here of Cinephile, but this time, I'm starting with a bit of entertainment news, then I'm going to circle back to the movie reviews. You want to know why that is? Because the amount of heat that I've taken over my criticism of Joker, that overrated, middling slog of a film, which I gave two Maple Leafs, and I said it was an average movie at best. And I have no desire to ever watch it again. And I found the rave reviews tiresome. And the fact it made a billion dollars nauseating. And the fact it led all films with Academy Award nominations, nothing more than grotesque. Well, finally, I have some backup. And it comes in the face and name of acclaimed director David Fincher. That's right. Your boy coming through. By the way, Mark Simon messaging me, am I going to see Meg? I mean, Simon, what are you, new? Are you kidding? It's a black and white film about a celebrated figure in history. Of course I'm going to see that movie. I cannot wait to go watch Meg. Gary Oldman starring. It's on Netflix, I believe, early December. Joseph L. Mankiewicz co-wrote Citizen Kane. Uncle of Ben Mankiewicz does an incredible job on Cinephile. Two-time guest. Are you kidding? Of course, I'm, I am ready for Mank. Eric Roth, by the way, the screenwriter. Good work by Simon sending me this uh, podcast that Eric Roth was on. We've got some news, by the way, on Killers of the Flower Moon in a second, which he wrote for Scorsese, Leo, and Bob. But first, back to Fincher. I love this so much. Acclaimed director David Fincher isn't afraid to share his harsh thoughts with the Academy Award-winning Joker. This was from the People magazine. In an interview with The Telegraph to discuss his new Netflix film, Mank, the Gone Girl director slammed Joker, which won Joaquin Phoenix an Oscar for Best Actor for playing the titular villain. I don't think anyone would have looked at that material and thought, yeah, let's take Travis Bickle and Rupert Pupkin and conflate them, then trap him in a betrayal of the mentally ill and trot it out for a billion dollars, Fincher said in the interview. Yes, as I said, it's a ripoff of taxi-driven king of comedy and a very inferior version of them. And that's why he's mentioning Travis Bickle, Rupert Pupkin. If you're not aware, those are the main characters of those films. Bickle, the disturbed character played by De Niro in Taxi Driver, and Pupkin, the delusional stand-up comedian also played by De Niro in The King of Comedy, inspired director Todd Phillips' vision. Nobody would have thought they had a shot at a giant hit with Joker had The Dark Knight not been as massive as it was. Fincher added, yes, Finch is bringing the heat. Not only is he agreeing with me, this is just a pale imitation of Marty. And by the way, happy 78th birthday to Martin Scorsese. We're recording this on a Tuesday. When you're done listening to this podcast, go to YouTube, Google Scorsese Cecil B. DeMille. When he won the Cecil B. DeMille Award, Golden Globes, De Niro, and Leo's speech. Leo's speech, all-timer, the way he talks about how Marty's name will be mentioned centuries from now when it comes to filmmaking artists. And then they have a seven-minute montage of Marty's movies. I'm going to go watch it again. I watched it the other day. I'm going to watch it again. It is so well edited. It's incredible. It'll take your breath away. Anyways, happy 78th birthday to Marty. More news in Killers of the Fire Moon in a second. But the fact that Fincher is pointing out, okay, basically Todd Phillips, you're ripping off Marty. It's a betrayal of the mentally ill. And by the way, without Christopher Nolan, you wouldn't be able to have done squat. David Fincher is officially my guy here, Joe. Yeah, how validated do you feel after an entire year? Remember the Oscar campaign all the way through February, everyone saying Joaquin Phoenix? Uh no, I completely agree. And and you should check out David Fincher's um, Netflix show Mindhunter. It's it, it's pretty much a two season long David Fincher movie. It's awesome, and I also really like the game too. Yeah, Adam Amin when he's not getting swept up in Aaron Sorkin schmaltz also recommended Mindhunter to me and said it was tremendous. Um, and the game is a one. You know, the rewatchables did that recently. Simmons and Company. It was a good listen. I don't remember much about the game. 
except I know Fincher isn't crazy about it. I think it did good business, but not great. It often gets overlooked. It was part of that stretch where Michael Douglas had hit after hit. You're like, oh my God, leading man Michael Douglas, forget about it. Disclosure, basic instinct. I mean, my guy was bringing out hit after hit. Sean Penn's only in the movie, I think, 12 minutes, maybe eight minutes. I think he's in two scenes. But Fennessy and Ron and Simmons were raving about him. So, yeah, the game is definitely good. I'm laughing, by the way. This People magazine article refers to Fincher as the Gone Girl director, and later it refers to him as the Panic Room director. I'm like, I'm not getting to those movies for five movies, at least if I'm discussing Fincher. It's Fight Club and Seven out of the gate. Then we get to Social Network for Amin and Mark Simon. And after that, we'll get to some other. I, I, I would mention the game before I think of a Panic Room. And I know, Joe, I know you're fond of the curious case of Benjamin Button, but thankfully that did not make a mention here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, how do you, how do you feel about um, Zodiac? That was kind of a polarizing movie. Oh. I thought it was slow and dull personally, but how did you like it? I, you know, I liked it, but I think that's a fair comment. I, I liked it for its time because I thought it was involving and dark, but it definitely had stretches where I was being a little bit, uh, a little weary and beaten down by the material. I just like Robert Downey Jr. that movie because he's just so freaked out about the whole concept of Zodiac, but it, it's not a film I would return to, to your point. Right, and also, uh, I mean, Mark Ruffalo is in it too, right? That's right. Ruffalo, I mean, it's a good cast. I mean, Zodiac, one thing about Fincher, he's always going to bring the actors, so cannot wait to see Mank, and I love the fact that he is... Uh, backing me up here, this shredding of Joker. Excellent evisceration by David Fincher. More news coming up, including Killers of the Flower Moon, new film from Scorsese, Leo, and Bob, and good work by Mark Simon, who sent me the Eric Roth podcast, in which Eric Roth, who's a screenwriter of that claptrap Forrest Gump, but also Killers of the Flower Moon. There's some insight we'll give you in a second. Let's circle back, though, to the reviews. And Downhill, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell. Barely escaping an avalanche during a family ski vacation in the Alps, a married couple is thrown into disarray as they are forced to reevaluate their lives and how they feel about each other. So first things first, it's a remake of a film called Force Majeure, uh, which is a Swedish film which got rave reviews. And I wasn't crazy about it. All right, I watched it. I, I, I get why it's funny. And there's definitely got that drool sense of humor to it. But I, I wasn't blown away by it. I was surprised it got such rave reviews. I also found it a little bit vapid. So, Downhill, I hear, is being made into a movie. I'm like, okay, you know, I've already seen the original. I know what it's about. Fine. Yeah, Avalanche comes. The guy's a chicken, runs away, and all of a sudden the wife doesn't trust him and look at him the same way. And now you're going to have Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I was hesitant to see it, even though I, I like both those actors a lot. And I'd heard Julia Louis-Dreyfus on a podcast um, from our man uh, MTV. Happy, set, confused, Jason Horowitz. Really good. Uh, but it was back in like April, I want to say. Maybe it was even earlier. I think it actually premiered at Sundance. And then the movie did nothing. Maybe it came out pre-pandemic, or maybe it came out afterwards. But bottom line is this, nobody really saw this movie. And now it's on HBO. And I noticed it a couple weeks ago. And I just checked Rotten Tomatoes casually, 36% critic reviews and 14% audience reviews. Like normally, if you looked at a Will Ferrell comedy, you go, all right, critics might crush it, but you know, fans are going to love it. But no, everyone hated this movie. And I got to be honest, maybe I'm just a contrarian, but I liked it. I think it's smart. I think it's funny. I think it's well cast. Like something about Will Ferrell's face is inherently funny. All right. I like, what am I funny? Like a clown? Like I amuse you? I make you laugh. I'm here to amuse you. Like Will Ferrell just has that doe face. And here playing a guy who, when an avalanche approaches, grabs his phone and runs away from his wife and kids. Thankfully, they're okay, but she can't look at him the same. The kids have lost all respect for him. Like he plays that doofus to a T. One of these sad sack middle-aged white men that you realize doesn't have a whole lot going on in his life, especially now that his wife and kids are feeling jilted. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus, listen, this character could just be a shrew, but I think she did a nice job of showing some subtlety to this character, the fact that she loves this man, but obviously can't look at him the same because what's more important than your husband being a valiant protector of you, and now he's, he's running away like a little girl. Like, are, are you kidding like, he's just running away like a baby. Like at one point, she even says that to him. It's not, it's not gender uh, correct, but that's how she's viewing him now. So, you know, marriage is strained. She's got a bit of a flirtation here. This uh, Italian instructor, Guglielmo, played by Giulio Baruti. What a hunk he is. You've also got uh, Zach Woods is in there, Zoe Chow. I mean, decent supporting cast. And as always, you guys all know me. I like it when it's nice and quick, baby. All right, let's not belabor the topic. You're looking at 86 minutes. I think that's even with credits. It might even be 82 minutes. I thought it was amusing. I thought it was observant. It doesn't have big laughs, but I, I laughed out loud at least a handful of times. It's excellent casting. And dare I say, as I offend anybody who has foreign film sensibilities, I thought it was better than the original. I enjoyed it more. Maybe it's my fondness for these American actors. 
but I'm going to recommend it. I think Downhill is funny, and I think you'll enjoy it. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. A couple of the reviews for you. Owen Gleiberman, my man from Variety. The new movie is a teasing trifle with something real in its mind, but it's winking 86-minute way. It stays true to what gave force majeure its force. See, now I agree. I didn't think it was that forceful. Uh, and Kathleen Sachs, the film oversimplifies the complexities of the original, however contrived they might have been. Downhill. I liked it, Joe. We don't have a lot of comedies these days. We need a good laugh right now. You could do worse than Downhill currently on HBO. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Oh, wow. Interesting. I mean, um, how, how do you... F- I feel like a movie like this, you know, they're stranger than fiction. I like Will Ferrell in that movie, but he has to toe the line between, like, his usual man-child character, I think, for this kind of role. Does he do that well in this movie? I mean, is he, like, kind of a man-child, or is he... You know, is this of more substance, I guess? No, you're right. Manchild is definitely the way he's going. I mean, it's, it's, it's those characters who just seem kind of like trapped by... I mean, he's not like infantile, but he definitely is somebody who is not as mature as one might expect. So I think that's a fair synopsis of Will Ferrell. All right. Well, that's my review here when it comes to Downhill. Uh, let's move it on and check out The Untouchables, okay? I hadn't seen it in a while, and uh, obviously, like so many, I was saddened to hear the newsing of Sean Connery. Although... Should be noted, for the amount of crap we give people who are, you know, behaving badly, you can very quickly also go on YouTube and Google Sean Connery talking about being abusive to women and how he explains to Barbara Walters in this interview that it's okay to slap a woman once in a while. And, and he actually gives context to it. It's, it's actually horrifying to see. So I cannot support Sean Connery in all manners of life and substance. But as a rascal, as a ladies' man, and as an actor, I am willing to put that aside momentarily while I focus on the work itself. And yes, that can be a challenge. I'm telling you, I, I, I watched it again. I'm like, he didn't actually say this. No, no, he told Barbara Walters, it's okay to slap a woman and here's why. But thankfully, there's no slapping of women in The Untouchables. Incredible script by the great David Mamet. You got Brian De Palma directing. All right, what a great stylist he is. And you've got Kevin Costner, peak 80s Kevin Costner. And you got Sean Connery. And you got Robert De Niro playing Al Capone. Sign me up. After building an empire with bootleg alcohol, legendary crime boss Al Capone, Robert De Niro, rules Chicago with an iron fist. Though Prohibition agent Elliot Ness, Kevin Costner, attempts to take Capone down, even in his best efforts fail due to widespread corruption within the Windy City's police force. Recruiting an elite group of lawmen who won't be swayed by bribes or fear, including Irish-American cop Jimmy Malone, played by Sean Connery, Ness renews his determination to bring Capone to justice. Like I said, I hadn't seen it in a long time. You watch it again. I mean, it was one of my favorite movies as a kid. And at times you can see a few creaks, but it is just thrilling entertainment. And De Palma made it clear at the time, he needed a hit, all right? He needed a big, juicy commercial hit. He had a couple of movies that had not done well financially. He looks at this material and goes, yeah, I can do it. And he wasn't crazy about the original show, but he goes, oh, in David Mamet's hands, it'll be different. And Mamet uncorks like a handful of such memorable dialogue. And then De Palma gives his set pieces, which are such a staple of his filmmaking style. Look at the last 12 minutes of Carlito's Way. I mean, amazing. Watching Brigante just being chased like a mouse through a maze. You know, here you got a couple of them. you got the scene with the baby in the carriage, which is a wonderful homage to uh, Eisenstein and Battleship Potemkin. You've also got Nitty being thrown off the roof, which is cartoonish but still entertaining. And then the memorable court scene, courtroom scene at the end. What's that you say? What? You're nothing but talking a badge. Never stop. Never stop fighting till the fight is done. You hear me, Capone. Here endeth the lesson. I mean, all the dialogue he writes for Connery is so good. You know, that's the Chicago way. You know, he comes at you with a knife. You come at him with a gun. That's the Chicago way, and that's how you get Capone. My favorite line, which isn't quoted nearly enough, is this town stinks like a whorehouse at low tide. <laughs> that's how Connery describes Chicago. Welcome to Chicago when he's talking to Kevin Costner. Um, but I think it's just got, like I said, incredible dialogue and performances. I haven't mentioned Andy Garcia yet. His first scene when Connery's belittling him and all Italians, and he goes, better than you, you stinking Irish pig. I mean, Andy Garcia bursting on the screen. Cuban playing an Italian-American, but fiery. Charles Martin Sw- uh, Smith, who's always good at playing those nebbish-type characters, and he plays Oscar Wallace. I thought he was actually very good as the guy who keeps insisting, yes, we can get Capone, we can get him on tax evasion. Patricia Clarkson later became an excellent indie actress. And here, I was surprised to see her. She plays Kevin Costner's wife. So Patricia Clarkson's been around for a long time. It's a very nice scene at the beginning where she writes him a note, I'm so proud of you. Uh, later on, he throws that note away, which is why that first raises the ire of Sean Connery. But it would be simplistic to say it's Sean Connery's film. Because like I said, De Niro is outstanding as Al Capone. 
you know, originally they cast him, and the producer met with him, Art Linson, and he was like, who's this kind of sh- very shy, quiet guy? Like, I don't, I don't see it. And then De Palma's like, oh, don't worry. Like, once we get him, we'll get him. And then De Niro was asking for an outrageous amount of money for like two weeks of work. And Art Linson's like, no, I can't do it. Producers, I can't do it. And then De Palma's like, listen, I'm walking away from the movie unless we get De Niro. Like, all right, fine, fine, let's figure this out. And once, once they gave Bob whatever he wanted, or at least negotiated the sum down, I mean, he ends up thinning his hair, shaving his head, put a little bit of weight on. I mean, just fantastic. Now, I don't think he put a ton of the weight on. De Palma said the attic acts can fit him a little bit. Not a fat suit per se, but get some extra padding because he didn't have enough time to really lose the weight or gain the weight, I should say, probably. But, I mean, that, the scene with the baseball bat, again, iconic scenes, right? That's what you're looking for in this movie. The scene with the baseball bat, team, team, just beats the guy to death. Smack him that first time as a kid watching it. Wow, I guess blood isn't red, blood is more like black, at least when you're looking at Brian De Palma's hands. But if you look at performances, and again, I haven't even gotten to Kevin Costner, I mean, he's the lead here. And Elliot Ness is kind of a square guy, but this is Pete Costner where he could really portray a character like that with kindness, with empathy, with dignity. But at the same time, a guy who wasn't going to take any more of this crap and wanted to finally strike back. Um, you got good villains as well, not just De Niro's component, Billy Drago is nitty. He's got a face, you just want to just punch him in the face. So when you combine Mamet's dialogue, an A-list top-shelf cast, including an incredible death scene for Sean Connery. I mean, he's already got all these great one-liners, but his death scene, perfect. I mean, ugh, heartbreaking. And you've got De Palma's directing. I mean, it is, it is one of those films that hits all the notes, and I love the ending as well. They're saying they might repeal Prohibition. Well, then I guess I'll have a drink. And now I get to the most important part of the film, Ennio Morricone's score. Opening credits give you chills. The music at the end is soaring and triumphant. Kerry Chow used to always be offended because I would tell him, listen, John Williams is an incredible composer, okay? He's an absolute legend. Of course he is. But I'll take Morricone. Morricone's scores were like The Untouchables and Milena and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Hateful Eight. I mean, Morricone's a different level, right? Him and John Williams, 1A, 1B. And the music to The Untouchables, you can't think about The Untouchables without thinking about the music, and watching it again, this movie was in 1987, 33 years later, it more than holds up. Here endeth the lesson. Joe, your thoughts on The Untouchables? And then I rewatched it uh, ahead of this episode, and I haven't seen it in years, and it's just so absolutely incredible. And it just seems like Brian De Palma at peak Brian De Palma. But over the course of this summer and throughout 2020, you've watched so many Brian De Palma movies, and you put it on your Mount Rushmore when we did the Mount Rushmore of De Palma movies. Would it be fair to say that this is your favorite De Palma movie? I think so, man. Like, I was thinking about that myself. I you know I really try to wave the flag for Casualties of War because it didn't do well financially, but I think it's got two great performances in Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox. By the way, I can't wait to go check out Michael J. Fox's book. I mean, at the age of 59, he's saying he's probably never going to act again, which is heartbreaking. I love Michael J. Fox, one of my favorite actors. Um, and he was really, really good in that movie, by the way. It was rare to see him in a drama at that time, 1989. film was a little muddled at times, but I thought it had a really strong film, strong thesis to it. After I saw Carrie, I recognized why so many people love that movie. It's one of Tarantino's favorite movies. You can't talk to Palmo without mentioning Carrie. And then, of course, Scarface and Carlito's Way, two great gangster movies he made with Al Pacino. But I think you're right, Joe. I mean, as fond as I am of Scarface, I think The Untouched was probably my favorite De Palma film. You? Yeah, uh, it's tough. I, 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 the Untouchables is great, but, I mean, he did the first Mission Impossible movie, too, yes. and that is iconic. And, you know, body double, Scarface, my default answer is The Untouchables, but it does change. And I also love Carrie, too. All right, I like it. But I, I'm with you on Carrie, man. It is very visually inventive. Some reviews of The Untouchables way back when, Dwayne Berg of The Hollywood Reporter, while overtly melodramatic, The Untouchables is a perceptive and hard-driven actioner. It's an intriguing character confrontation loaded with ironies, both personal and social. Ian Nathan of Empire, superb performances, exquisite direction, and that Ennio Morricone score create an authentic 1920s Chicago feel and a hugely entertaining crime drama. And lastly, Derek Malcolm of Guardian. The Untouchables is two hours of fairly solid entertainment, an eventually uplifting parable about right beating might, cast in the form of a Warner Brothers social realist picture of the 30s. If you haven't seen The Untouchables, do yourself a favor and watch it now. Sean Connery wins an Oscar and he is fantastic, as is the entire cast, as is Brian Tomalmo's direction, as is David Mamet's script in The Untouchables. Let's do a little bit of entertainment news, and then we'll get to our special guest. So I mentioned Killers of the Flower Moon. 
Big news here, right? Oh my goodness. When is this movie going to start? Eric Roth's screenplay continues to be rewritten. Marty's next project continues to wait. It was supposed to roll in March of 2020. That's right, March of this year. Pandemic crushed us, right? News breaks in August. It's going to be February 2021. But Roth's saying in the latest episode of the Script Notes podcast, March 2021, okay, it's only a month, likely start date. Here's what's interesting, though. Why is that? It's because of Leonardo DiCaprio. Roth's saying, I spent four or five years in this book, Killers of the Flower Moon, which everybody should read. It's a wonderful book. It is a great book. I just gave it to my brother. He liked it. My screenplay, I think, was accurate to the book. It's a story of Osage Indians, 1921, the poorest people in America, who discover oil in this terrible land in Oklahoma where they've been driven to. Then every killer in America comes to kill 184 of them for their money, but this really heroic guy comes in to help. Roth continued, that's supposed to start filming in March once the COVID clears out, and it's Martin Scorsese. Though we continue rewrites with that. Leonardo wanted some things changed that we argued about. He won half of the arguments, I won half of them, so that's happening. Now, rumors have been percolating since May, because in Roth's version of the film, DiCaprio was starring as the hero, a federal agent working for the newly established FBI. DiCaprio pushed to revise the script. He would take on the nephew of the villainous killer, played by Robert De Niro. So this is amazing, Joe. Maybe more interesting because I've read the book. And while reading it, I kept saying, oh, White, the FBI agent, 6'4", Texan. Yeah, Leo's not a big guy, but of course he's playing him. And reading it, I absolutely knew De Niro was going to be playing the villain. But now, isn't that fascinating? Leo's got enough juice that he goes, no, you know what? I want to play the bad guy too. Me and Bob will both be the bad guys. We'll have to cast some other lead. I don't care. And apparently Paramount originally was going to bankroll the film. Once Leo went heel, like purely to the WWE, once he was like, no, no, I'm not playing the hero. I'm playing the bad guy. Paramount balked. And that's where Rick Yorn, Leo and Marty's longtime manager, they were like, all right, if you can find a deal elsewhere. And Apple's like, yeah, sure. We'll give you $200 million. Done. So Leo gets what he wants. He gets a bunch of the script changes he wants. Eric Roth will play ball as much as he can. And uh, away we go. Killers of the Flower Moon hopefully shooting in a few months. Oh, that would be amazing if it did. Could you imagine being a, a fly on the wall between Eric Roth and Leo just hammering out the new script? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Love- no, because Eric Roth is really good in the podcast. Like He made it clear, Joe. He's got a little bit of ego to him. He's like, listen, back in the day, he goes, you write this script and you get a bunch of notes. And I'm like, oh, God, it's, I hate rewriting. It's the worst. And he goes, now I tell people, no, no. I will look at revisions, but just bullet points, and I'll do my best, but like no guarantees. And he goes, honestly, sometimes I didn't want to do it. And then one time a director told him, listen, if you don't rewrite it, that's fine. You can write what you want. I'm just not going to film it. (laughs) So it's like, you have to play ball, dude. Like eventually we're the ones making the movie. But he said, you know, listen, he's won an Oscar for Forrest Gump, a movie which blows. We all know that. But listen, he's worked with Michael Mann before. And he he credited Scorsese. He goes, listen, Marty's very inventive. He goes, you look at different directors. He goes, like, Michael Mann's a bit of a pain. He goes, actually, he's a lot of a pain because he's a writer himself. Himself, but he brings it the best in you. He'll fight you on everything, but he's a great director. Uh, he said Fincher, again, is tough. Fincher will fight you on stuff. He's very specific in what he wants. He goes, Marty is incredibly inventive. He goes, he's just like, just write it. Like, think outside the box, be ambitious. I'll think of a way to film it. But he he wants to encourage that kind of creativity. But yeah, Leo versus Roth. Imagine that battle. Oscar-winning actor, Oscar-winning screener. You change this. No, you change this. No, I'm not doing that. No, you do that. You're right. Fly on the wall for that would be funny. Oh, it'd be great, especially, you know, Leo being an actor. All my friends I know who are actors are just so overly dramatic in arguments. Do you know what I mean? And so he would just, I can't imagine getting into an argument with either of them, you know? <laughs> exactly. Good luck. Yeah, writers by nature are bloviating and actors are gas bags themselves. Good luck with that battle. One other bit of news, then we're getting to our guests. Sylvester Stallone, the latest team to join the cast of Suicide Squad. Franchise director James Gunn posting the news in an Instagram post on Saturday night. It is unclear what role Stallone will play in the next installment scheduled for a 2021 release. CNN previously reported the film already has a star-studded lineup, including several actors who are part of the 2016 cast. Margot Robbie reprising Harley Quinn. Va, 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 voom. Jai Courtney as Captain Boomerang. Joel Kinnaman as Colonel Rick Flagg. Viola Davis as Amanda Waller. And Gunn announced Idris Elba, also part of the new cast. It remains unclear who will play the Joker, as Jared Leto does not appear to be coming back in the role of the villain. So Sly getting his suicide squad on. Look forward to that. Coming up next, the directors of the documentary The Last Out, Summy Khan and Michael Gasser and the Mount Rushmore of Will Ferrell movies next here on Cinefly. When you need 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Terrific new documentary. It's called The Last Out. It is about the plight of Cuban ballplayers. It's a real pleasure to bring in Sami Khan and Michael Gasser. Uh, Sami, of course, I'm going to say yes to you because you got my contact information from Ben Lyons. You're Muslim. You're Canadian. And this is about baseball. I mean, this is this is the true grand slam. Thank you for making time and coming on Cinephile today. Yeah, man, we got this uh, this kinship. Uh, the, the The fates have uh, aligned us, so I had to reach out. And of course, that doesn't. We're not even t- taking into account your, uh, you know, what you've done for sports journalism, sports broadcasting over the years. So you were uh, you were a hero to me. It was at a time when you know there weren't a lot of brown faces on TV. So to you know turn on turn on ESPN and see you on there was pretty incredible. So thank you for for having us. Oh, of course, man. That's very sweet of you to say. I'm wearing my Canada hat now. I don't know if my, even Michael's Canadian, but hopefully uh, some of you'll appreciate it. Michael, the last out, uh, it's about, listen, we've seen Cubans in, in the majors for years now, but I don't think people really appreciate how difficult the journey is. Maybe when you're watching the Yankees dynasty, you go, oh, Al Duque, Tim McCarver's telling the story. He's on a raft. He has to defect. But watching your documentary, maybe clear again, these guys are making tremendous sacrifices. Randy Rosarena just had a huge uh, performance in the playoffs. You look up his story. Again, had to leave Cuba, was living in Mexico. What was the genesis for you, Michael? What was it that you want to tell about this story? Well, I think, you know, you keyed into uh, really what Sammy identified as being unique to this story, the plight that Cuban players, uh, prospects in particular, have to uh, undergo in order to have a chance just to reach the highest level of their craft. And that resonated with me. I'm from uh, the Milwaukee area. I grew up as a sports fan and and playing sports. And, uh, you know, we talk about hoop dreams. And, you know, I grew up a Marquette basketball fan. And I remember sitting there and watching and identifying Coach Kevin O'Neill and be like, oh, I remember seeing him on the sidelines. But seeing how they're grooming these young men into products at such an early age, even just before, you know, being in college. So I had an understanding of, you know, the cost and even growing up in the suburbs. And this is a story of, of, of South Chicago, but it was very much like Milwaukee. And uh, so when, when Sammy keyed into this, I was like, wow, you know, I love the, the sports and the dream element of it, but I was really drawn to the human side um, that I think, you know, Sammy was really keen to investigate early on. And, you know, um, that, that led us together and, and hooked me for sure. Well, Kevin O'Neill, former Raptors coach, and uh, congrats <laughs> on Dwayne Wade. Had some great years there with Marquette, obviously. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sammy, it's interesting. So you, you've identified, okay, here's the story we want to tell. We think it's going to be uh, riveting and engrossing. Now you've got to find the human elements. How do you determine which players to cover? Because just as Michael alluded to with Hoop Dreams, I'm watching it going, okay, Arthur Agee, William Gates, well, those guys didn't play in the NBA. I would know those names. How are you trying to determine which players to follow? And is that almost immaterial? You don't necessarily need these guys to be Joanna Cespedes. You're just focusing on these players and, and hopefully it develops into whatever it develops into. Yeah, I mean, the, to, to be real, the, the, the reality is that it was trial and error. You know, there was four or five months where we started following various leads. You know, we were trying to tell Yasio Puig's story. We were, uh, Yoan Mancada had just defected and was in Central America somewhere. So we were trying to talk to this accountant in the Tampa area who, uh, for some reason, was like the central figure in Yoan Moncada's exit from Cuba. Um, and then one of the other sort of lines we were following was this fascinating character named Gustavo Dominguez, Cuban-American, came over in the 60s during the freedom fights when he was a kid, and then kind of stumbled into representing Cuban ballplayers. And in the words of Michael Lewis, uh, invented the market for Cuban ballplayers. And it took us a while to convince Gus to let us interview him. And then we had this this epic interview with him that lasted all day, um, which is actually in the film. And at the end of that interview, he mentioned that he had this new crop of Cuban ballplayers down in Costa Rica. And would we want to go down there? 
Um, and of course, we jumped at the opportunity. And then, you know, we still weren't sure what the balance was between a documentary taking place in the past versus in the present. But then when we went down there and we met our, our, our main characters, Happy, Carlos, and Barro, you know, Mike turned to me at one point and was like, you know, I think I, we found our story. And then we knew this was a story that was 90, 95% taking place in the present. It was about them chasing that dream, you know, hoop dream style. We're talking to Sammy Khan and Michael Gassard. The Last Out is the name of their documentary, and it is terrific. You mentioned some of those characters, Happy Oliveros, Carlos Gonzalez, Victor Barro. And I want to talk more about Gustavo Dominguez. Not only does he look like Pedro Gomez, my longtime colleague at ESPN, a very crowd Cuban-American uh, baseball reporter, but I, what I thought was great, Michael, is that Gus comes across. You go, okay, I've seen guys like this, right? Paternal figure, nice guy. He, he, the script says he takes 20% of the signing bonus. I'm like, well, that's fair. Look, whatever. It's agent business. But he's housing them. He's taking the risk. And then you find out, oh, wait, Gus was actually in prison. That, that, that was smart the way you guys developed that because he just seems like, like I said, you know, a guy that you see on the streets helping these kids up. Oh, wait, actually he's in prison. There's a backstory there as well. What did you guys find with Gus? Because it, it, it really twisted to me. I went from like, oh, sweet guy to hmm, potentially, I mean, he's a felon. Like, well, well, how did your impression change, Michael? Sure. Um, well, it's interesting. Yeah, the, the element of him going to prison, we learned early on in that first interview. Um, but that sort of, you know, framed it for us as potentially a redemption story. Here's this guy that was potentially wrongfully imprisoned. Um, you know, he, he did everything above the line, but essentially violated this trade embargo. Um, so, you know, when, like Sammy said, when we went down there, we were really kind of riding uh, along with Gus and, and it felt a lot along the way, like we were sort of one of the guys waiting for somebody to sign, waiting for a big break. Um, you know, we were going to Gus for information and as, you know, things started to unravel and we got to know the players a little bit better, we started to understand really how they got there, uh, more of the inner workings of the relationship between Gus and the coaches and the players. And while everybody wanted the same thing to happen, everybody wanted these guys to sign for big money, you know, uh, the details at which, you know, that was either possible or not possible um, became very interesting, not only to us just in terms of real life, but as Gus is a character, as, as the players started to have doubts about him, um, and their relationship changed. So did our relationship with um, not only Gus, but the players as well. And I think being able, even though, you know, there was three of us working on this film, we were spread out uh, enough that, you know, maybe I was in Costa Rica with the guys and Sammy's in LA and I'm, I'm relaying to Sammy, hey, this is what the guys are saying down here. And he's able to put it right to Gus and kind of get his real time reaction. So, you know, hopefully in our investigation uh, to the truth, you know, we were able to hold, you know, everybody accountable, including ourselves. Yeah. And I think, listen, he's honest about it. Like you said, he doesn't have any misgivings about it. So he didn't run afoul of it, but it's important to tell that story. Sammy, I just love the fly on the wall conversations when it's tryouts. Uh, you know, Gus's mumbling, you know, what's up with happy today? You know, he's, he can't hit for the crap. He tells me in Spanish, what are you doing? Like, come on, let's go. Um, I love when they're looking at some of the pitchers, like, oh, look at the break on that ball. Even when he's talking to one of the scouts and he's like, hey, what are you thinking? He's like, hey, we'll talk. He's like, yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk. Like, I thought that was so authentic. How did you determine how to call together those conversations? You know, I, I have to give a special shout out to our editor, Carlo Gutierrez, uh, one of our editors, Carlo Gutierrez, who edited RBG, um, you know, great documentary, super relevant now, and uh, another great documentary, When Two Worlds Collide. Um, but a lot of that stuff, Carla was just able to key into, you know, she's a native Spanish speaker. Uh, Mike's more proficient in Spanish than I am. I speak a little bit, you know, Cuban Spanish can, can pass. Uh, but uh, she like found these nuggets and like the, the one, and then the, the sort of, we had two stages of editing, a second team of editors, Mark and Daniela, came in and late in the this the process the editing process they found mark who is you know a, a native english speaker he found this line of dialogue where gus is you know reprimanding happy you know what what the hell's wrong with you today happy it's like you you're, you're batting like crap you know something to that effect and it was perfect it's it was when you know happy was sort of feeling the pressure it felt like you know things were reaching a breaking point um, and narratively, in terms of our storytelling process, where it was 
uh, finding where it was sort of falling in the edit was that that right you know turn of the screw um, to just ramp things up. So I mean, a huge credit to our our uh, you know our editors who did that. Um, but I also have to say, Adnan, you can call me Sami. My dad will be super happy. You know. <laughs> Style and don't have to do the anglicized name. I know I was going with the very professional because uh, I was going with Sammy authentically, and then I was like, "Well, Michael's going with Sammy," so I'm like, "All right, whatever, whatever you're comfortable with." No, my my dad will be really happy if you call me Sammy. <laughs> Absolutely, Sammy it is. Uh, Michael, why do documentaries? You guys make no money. You work your tail off. I mean, I, I, I read every documentary I've ever spoken to, unless it's Ken Burns, has no money. They're living paycheck to paycheck. Why don't you guys just sell out and make some commercials? Seriously. I mean, you're asking a really good question. I'm asking myself the same thing right now, <laughs> trying to sell, get this one out the door and get another one off the ground. But no, I, you know, I'm, I think like Sammy, I'm just really interested in, in human stories, you know, and I think there's, there's something to the observational style documentary where you really just have to not only physically get close to people, but really get close to their life and their life experience. And especially right now, I think it's a really powerful tool in just trying to generate some empathy and compassion and share uh, our collective experience, you know, as human beings. Sammy, for you or somebody, do you ever have situations where you say, you know what, I'm doing this because I love it, but it's kind of like the theater. Like you better love it because there's no external rewards for it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what the thing is? I mean, we, there were times during production where we, you know, we would uh, be frayed financially, but it actually is now more looking back on it. It's like we were, we've been working on this for more than six years, but when we were, when we were in it, we were so in it. Like there was a, a long time where, you know, Mike, shouldered like the financial burden a lot of like the the filming burden uh and then and then it flips right it's like then you know then i would carry the burden financially um because we hadn't raised our financing yet and we had you know our credit cards were, were ramped up but you know <laughs> i think that uh you know that mike's right i think that's like the unifying idea this this approach to storytelling that kind of like observational approach to storytelling it offers us something really remarkable at this moment where there is a real deficit of empathy you know and it, we, everything is so transactional you know with our cell phones with our streaming services you can just you know content and people are just so disposable athletes are so disposable um and there's something about verite filmmaking that can really uh make you understand someone's point of view and actually, you know, to go back to Carla, our editor, she she started talking. She started talking about this the last few months, but she was, you know, she's she's worked on stories about immigration before, and you know, our, our film sort of starts out about being about baseball and then turns to being about migration and the American dream. But Carla, who is like a very experienced editor, she pointed out that there are not a lot of films that talk about the demand for migrants. You know, and I think, you know, Anand, you can relate to that. You left sort of your home country to go to the U.S. Um, and it's like we, we they focus on the supply of migrants films do, but they don't they don't look into the demand. Um, and so we kind of stumbled <laughs> into that, to be honest, <laughs> that uh, but that was something that was driving us. It's like humanizing this demand, this chase for the, you know, the almighty dollar and sort of what, what that does to people, how that fractures their relationships. And in the case of, you know, our core guys actually makes them more resilient, makes them hold on to those ideas of family and loyalty and brotherhood. Yeah. And that's a great point, Sammy. I want to emphasize that to people. You don't have to be a baseball fan to appreciate this. Yes, it starts about baseball, but as you guys know, with documentaries, you make it universal by making it specific. It's specifically about Cuban ballplayers, but it's about the immigrant experience uh, it's about leaving your family, trying your own way. And I thought, Mike, I, I, listen, I thought Gus was pretty honest when he was like, listen, we keep these guys for a little while. We show them the scouts. If they don't get signed. It's like, all right, see ya. Like they, then they have to go start their life. I didn't think that was callous. I thought he was being pretty honest. And you know what? These guys probably have a leg up on a lot of other Cuban Americans, excuse me, Cubans who don't even get to America. Like at least they're there. Okay. You can go be a dishwasher and try to start your life uh, rather than being in an impoverished country. Right. Sure. I think that's definitely, you know, Gus would agree with that. He's like, hey, I got you halfway. You know, I, I, I didn't let you know when I cut the cord, but, you know, here you go. Um, 
but yeah, I think, you know, as filmmakers, we, we know how expendable we are, you know, um, as, as laborers and workers and artists and this sort of thing. So, um, you know, I think Sammy had a nose for that in the beginning, you know, some of the darker turns this would take, even um, as they sort of revealed themselves through characters, you know, Gus is a complicated guy and a lot of people understand him as a businessman as well. Um, but when we talk about, you know, turning a buck and, you know, everything that we do um, involves other human beings. So, um, you know, we always have to weigh what, what the cost of our actions and our choices are. So, you know, I think, um, you know, we, we wrote a fine line and, uh, you know, I give a lot of credit to Sammy and his just sense for story. Uh, he let me kind of, uh, he unleashed me to <laughs> capture all this footage, but you have to put, you know, a coherent story together there. Um, and I think, you know, the complexities are really in just that interpersonal drama where there aren't clear uh, black and white, you know, right and wrong. And it's, it's really up for people to decide, you know, um, you know, what, uh, you know, how they feel about the choices that, that these guys made, but, you know, everyone's doing the best for themselves, but again, there's a cost to, to it. No question. The last out terrific documentary. Summy, give us uh, give us the plug. Where can people see this excellent, excellent documentary? So starting tomorrow, running to November 19th, you can see the film at Doc NYC. I think it's like the largest documentary film festival in the United States. Yeah, we were to premiere at Tribeca in April, but uh, COVID had other plans. Uh, so in the short term, you know, we're going to be at Doc NYC and then, you know, we'll excitedly be announcing our broader release plans in the next couple of months. Awesome. Doc NYC, November 11th to the 19th. Make sure you check out The Last Out, Oscar-nominated filmmakers Sami Khan and Michael Gassert. Uh, before we let you go, just uh, this is more for Sami. So on the topic of Muslim names, you know, we had somebody over the other day and, uh, you know, obviously Muhammad's always called Mo, but this guy's name was Mabrur. And my, my eldest son, Yusuf, is like, what, what's this guy's name? And he, but Michael, you'll appreciate it. He goes, you know, yeah, I remember, yeah. he goes, he goes, you know, I remember this guy's name. He goes, I thought the Milwaukee Brewers. I'm like, I don't remember this guy's name. Mabrur. I'm like, just, just go with Mo. We'll find an easy way. Uh, the last step. Terrific, terrific stuff, boys. Thank you so much for the time. And uh, seriously. It's God's work, man, doing documentaries. This, like, as I said, I have pure respect for it. Sammy mentioned, uh, you know, Verite, Frederick Weissman filmmakers. You, you guys have certainly done your profession proud. Well done. Thanks, Thank Anand. So Thank you, brother. Take care. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Mount Rushmore. All right, once again, Doc NYC Film Festival, docnyc.net for details. Support both those guys. Terrific guys. And once again, excellent documentary about the likes of Happy Oliveros, Carlos Gonzalez, Victor Barra, and Gustavo Dominguez as Cubans trying to make it rich or at least get a better life for themselves in America playing Major League Baseball. Mount Rushmore, a Will Ferrell movies. My man Cabby's met him before. Guy's hilarious. Seems like a nice guy. Max Bredos, again, Good friend, does a phenomenal job, LAFC, play-by-play guy, my favorite guy I worked with at ESPN. Will Farrell, part owner of LAFC, the soccer team. So Max has interviewed him before, had his son Maxie with him. If not, Will Farrell did a video for Maxie. Regardless, he's a great guy, okay? And I have that from two good sources, that Will Farrell is a legitimately nice guy and a good guy. He's also a very funny guy and a very rich guy, because that kind of goes hand-in-hand as well, doesn't it? So the Mount Rushmore Will Farrell movies... This is a guy who was known for Night the Roxburgh and SNL, makes it into a movie, headbanging away, and then all of a sudden it's hit after hit. And yeah, okay, Austin Powers, sure, he's in Drowning Mona, Zoolander, but really the film we're starting with is old school. Everybody knows Will Ferrell for Frank the Tank, incredible performance in an unforgettable way of stealing that movie away from Vince Vaughn, Luke Wilson, and all the others. We're going streaking, he says. 
Talladega Nights. I mean, the fact the camera zooms in on him, he says, please be 18. Really funny movie. Ricky Bobby, Shake and Bake. Anchorman, I'll be honest, I am not as huge on as others. Maybe I'm just sensitive because I'm an anchor myself. That can't be true. That's not the way we are. But like laughs per minute, I don't think it's one of his funniest movies. But again, you're looking at iconic characters, memorable guys. The whole concept of Ron Burgundy is very funny. Uh, San Diego means a whale's vagina. I mean, the fact he's got the leather-bound books, it's just the whole style and look of him. Reading everything in prompt Again, iconic. I'm Ron Burgundy. That's in there. So the last choice, I'm going to go with Step Brothers. Not just because I love Richard Jenkins, but the chemistry with him and John C. Riley. I mean, the cover alone makes me smile and laugh. Honorable mentions, listen, I thought he was amazing in Wedding Crashers, playing a funeral crasher, small little cameo. You know I love Lego Movie. It's nice to see him in a kid's movie. And Get Hard is not a good movie, but there's about two great laughs in that, particularly when he's got like an arrow sticking out of his head. Or it's a knife sticking out of his head. It could be an arrow uh, with Kevin Hart. So honorable mentions to Get Hard, Lego Movie, and uh, Wedding Crashers. But my actual four is uh, Old School, Talladega Nights, Anchorman, and Step Brothers. Joe? That is such a good list. I absolutely love and advocate for um, Talladega Nights to everyone that I can talk to. Um, but I will not put it on my list. I'll put that as an honorable mention. I will put Step Brothers on. Uh, I think that movie's hilarious. And the chemistry between John C. Riley and Will Ferrell can't be beat just at what we were talking about earlier, man-child, you know, man-children. Um, Anchorman, I think, really launched his career and... I saw it at a very formative time in my life, and it was a movie that really just turned me on to comedy in general and his performance in that, so definitely Anchorman. I'm going to go with Zoolander. He plays the villain Musafa, and he is absolutely phenomenal as the funny villain in that movie. Um, and then my last one will be Just in Time for the Holidays, Elf, 2003. It's a beloved movie now for an entire generation of kids, and his performance is just so lovable. And he has such a, he, he nails like the curiosity of you know this brave new world he's seen for the first time. So my four are Step Brothers, Anchorman, uh, Zoolander, and Elf. A good list. If I'm not mistaken, Elf, James Conn was like a royal pain on the ass in the set. Nobody liked him. I don't. I may be making that up, but I, somebody has told me that before. I don't have any proof of that. But have you ever heard that before? James Conn, the making of Elf was a pain. John Favreau and company. Oh no, I had I had that had absolutely no idea. Okay, that, maybe, that's fascinating though. Maybe I have poor information, but somebody listening will either Google this or tweet me and correct me. But I believe James Conn was a pain to them. But Elf, like I said, it's now definitely a beloved classic. It's it's always. Uh, Got the Yuletide spirit. It's always in heavy rotation around this time of year. So yeah, Elf, funny movie, lots of great moments along the way. And no, we're not going to mention the campaign or uh, Between Two Ferns, the movie. Although I know people like the movie. Megamind, Anchorman 2 was a disappointment. <laughs> Zoolander 2, Daddy's Home 2, Holmes and Watson. I mean, listen, there's, there's been some misses along the way. But Will Ferrell, good guy, funny guy. No doubt about that. Uh, thanks, as always, for appreciating Cinephile. Please do hit me up, Cinephile Pod, or Adnan S. Ferk. Please go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Back with plenty more. We're not going anywhere, okay? I don't think we're going to miss a single episode this year. We're not taking any Thanksgiving break. There's no Christmas break. We're going to keep pounding out episodes every week. So please do spread the word, and I will see you at the movies.